It is with grateful heart that each of us gathered today, I'm sure, as was mentioned a moment ago at the outset of the announcements, what a tremendous blessing it is on this first day of the week, the fourth Sunday in the month of November this year, that each of us have been blessed with health and the capability that all is well enough with us to assemble and to gather in the way that we have. As Brother Lester mentioned, we are so thankful indeed for not only the membership at Pippin who are out in good number today with each of us blessed as we are, but several visitors alike have come our way and we want you to know that if you have any questions or thoughts about the congregation here at Pippin, please ask one of our elders or one of ourselves. We'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have about the congregation at this location. For a number of Sundays on the mornings, we've been turning our attention to the words spoken by our Savior while He was hanging on the cross. The circumstances under which these words were spoken add to them a tremendous degree of emphasis, a tremendous degree of power and effectiveness, and we have given our attention to those now, today being the fifth Sunday in that series of lessons. As we have looked at them one by one, we have come to this point. We have noticed that in the spring of that year, as our Savior was nailed to the cross bringing to a closure a perfect life and all the features and attributes of it. As He was nailed to that cross, we have reminded ourselves that to this point we've studied four tremendously powerful phrases that He uttered. It began in Luke 23 verse 34 when He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We use that occasion to remind ourselves of the enormity of forgiveness and the power attached to that concept. The following Sunday, we looked at Luke 23, verse 43, when our Savior said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, spoken to one of those thieves nailed to the cross beside him. We learned on that occasion about the grandeur and what was involved in paradise and what happens when we pass away. On the occasion of that third Sunday, we looked at that statement that Jesus made, on the one hand to his mother, on the other hand to John, when he said, Woman, behold thy son, and also to John, Behold thy mother. He committed then the safekeeping and the provision of his mother to John, and from that point forward, John took care of Mary as if she were his own. Last Sunday, we turned our attention to that scene in which Jesus spoke such a tremendous statement in Matthew 27, verse 46, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we use that time to remind ourselves about the fact that for a moment... Jesus was forsaken by the Father in heaven due to the sin He carried and the enormity of every sin of every human being of all time being atoned for by His blood. Today we come to the fifth statement made by Jesus while He hanged on the cross. This statement, very much different than the earlier four that we've studied. Maybe in fairness you can appreciate even at the very bottom, it's going to involve the concept of thirst. As we have done in the past, I think it again appropriate for us to at least picture in our mind the circumstances in which our Savior made statements like this one. The previous hours He had been beaten virtually mercilessly, John 19 verse 1, scourged and brought to the very brink in some instances of death where at least others in the matter of scourging, and yet Jesus survived. But following that, He was forced to carry a cross and brought to a place called Golgotha, where in fact He was hanged upon it. 
This picture is a little different than some of the ones that you and I have seen in previous weeks. It's a picture reminding us that here was Jesus crucified with, again, two thieves. And we notice as these rabble-rousers were crucified with Him, there were individuals capable of observing, capable of watching. And above Jesus, you'll notice something different about His cross. You may remember that Pilate had ordered a decree, "'This is the King of the Jews.'" written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. As our Savior then found Himself hanging in a position like that one, it brings us to the statement that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. A statement made by a man in a condition perhaps like this. A statement made by a man who was bereft of all the comforts of the human family. Here he was in agonizing pain. Here he was without all the comfort that other common individuals might desire. He himself was hanging in a position, having been nailed there by wicked individuals, while he himself, of course, was sinless. To add a few more thoughts to that idea, we notice again the torture attached to crucifixion. We notice again the excruciating circumstances that surrounded it. In fact, at this point, I'd like to share with you one matter that came to my attention as I prepared for the lesson. It's this modern English word, excruciating. I had never really thought of where that word may have come from, but oddly enough, literally in the original language from which that word comes, it means out of the cross. Our Lord, if ever there was anyone experiencing an excruciating event, He did it. And excruciating directly ties to the thought of the cross. Jesus experienced all of that that day. And you and I notice as darkness fell over the land from midday until the time of His passing, it brings us to appreciate this fifth word spoken by Jesus. Again, in John chapter 19, verse number 28, the inspired writer had these words to say. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. In each of the four previous words that Jesus spoke, they really cast the spotlight somewhere other than Himself. It was for forgiveness of those who had done this to Him. It made attachment to provision for His own mother in her waning years. It made provision of the fact of paradise for that thief, one of those thieves that was crucified with Him. Or in fact, it made that statement about the character of His own forsakenness. But you'll notice never in any of them did Jesus make any reference to His own physical malady, His own physical suffering, His own physical torture. All of these thoughts were for someone else. But now suddenly in word number five, we come to His own statement. And isn't it in a way extremely powerful when He said, I thirst. Our Savior was thirsty. Let's in fact try to develop an appreciation about what may have prompted that feeling of thirst. I know that there are many far more knowledgeable of the human body from a medical standpoint than am I. And I know many in this audience could share thoughts about what's involved in dehydration. But from as nearly as I'm able to tell, the whole thought of the crucifixion brings us to these comments at the bottom that will continue on the next slide as well. We each understand that by this time of the day, the Lord had now been nailed to the cross for six hours virtually. 
As such, we already know that he has lost an enormous amount of blood. That had happened even during the scourging that took place prior to the crucifixion. No doubt then Jesus was already rather fatigued, very, very low in energy. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, already given the posture in which his hands were, have, would have been nailed and the posture in which his legs were also nailed, breathing was a difficult thing. Even the mere matter of in and exhaling was a chore that had to be carried out, not with just undue thought of any kind. You and I know that our breathing typically is regulated internally in such a way we don't have to think much about it. By this time on the cross, the Lord would have had to almost give careful mental thought to the matter of just breathing. As you can see beyond that, it is true as nearly as I'm able to tell that many victims of crucifixion died simply by virtue of asphyxia. They finally reached the point they just couldn't breathe anymore. Maybe by this time on the cross our Savior was laboring beneath the great duress of simply trying to breathe. As you'll notice, at the bottom, cramps would already no doubt have set in. With his muscles being extended in the way they were, attempting to support the weight of his body, those muscles already almost surely would have been in a matter of painfulness to go along with the nails that were already resting in his feet and hands. And in addition to that, the muscle cramps would have been accompanied, it would seem, by dehydration. We make mention of this thought of dehydration for the following reason. You notice again this statement that Jesus made. Dehydration is an extremely serious condition of the human body. I'm sure each of us have at least some idea about what that involves. It is in which there isn't enough water in the human body. Now you and I know from our study of chemistry and biology alike that the human body is over half water. Ultimately, the great creation of God has provided for us a human body and water is a vital and critical component in it. The nervous system cannot work properly without it. The other systems of the body begin to fail if there isn't sufficient water. No wonder we're often admonished to make sure we drink enough water. May I say to you in light of all of that, it's well been told to us that a person can survive several weeks without any food. I wouldn't suggest you try that, but it's been told that we can do it. However, nobody can survive but just a few days without water. We find Jesus on the cross in the condition in which we've studied. Lost all the blood that He had, at least to this point that He's lost so much of it. The characteristics attached to the features of all the agony and excruciating pain that have gone with it. We find in the midst of all of that that Jesus... Now made this simple statement, I thirst. Our Lord was thirsty. As I did research in attempting to understand the depth and the profoundness of that simple comment, there were various individuals who in the presence of watching others and doing more intensive research from the ancient era of crucifixion made observation that the very element of thirst so often was so powerful and strong that it drove the person immediately, it would seem, into death. The notion of being that thirsty. You can imagine as you come near the bottom of that slide then that there was a response. 
In verse number 29 of John chapter 19, after they had heard our Lord make that statement, it says, Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Maybe it was a scene that looked something like that. You remember Jesus was elevated, of course, being on that cross, and you notice that a vessel of vinegar was nearby. There were those who, upon hearing what the Savior had said, they filled a sponge with that vinegar and lifted it up on hyssop and touched it to his mouth and allowed him access to this which might quench his thirst. As you think about a picture like that one, as you think about features surrounding it, notice that a sponge, really though it was an ancient day, was very much like a sponge you and I might see. Now it wasn't made of the synthetic materials that you and I are used to buying a sponge with these days. But it was nonetheless a particular substance that was able to absorb a great amount of liquid. They put it on the end of this hyssop branch and put it then to Jesus. You can imagine perhaps how little aid that would have been, but nonetheless at least it was an offer of liquid. What was this vinegar that they utilized? Frankly, the actual meaning of that word in the text has to do with a mixture of water and sour wine. A mixture of water and sour wine. It was apparently a rather common, refreshing beverage in that day and time, and so that's what they chose to give our Savior on this occasion. I thirst. I'd invite you with me for the remainder of the lesson this morning to reflect upon the thirst which Jesus referenced and what might be some lessons you and I can see in that that might be of tremendous assistance to us as we strive to live in a way that pleases Him. I thirst. As we develop those thoughts, may we begin by observing again what may appear to be a somewhat innocent statement found again in verse number 28. That text again reads in John chapter 19, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. We haven't laid any emphasis to this point upon that reference to the fact that the Scriptures were fulfilled, but let's take this following opportunity to do that. The fact that the Scriptures were fulfilled. Isn't it an almost amazing matter time and again to reflect upon the purity as well as the accuracy of the sacred Word of God? This seems like such an appropriate time to give some consideration to that point. Notice again that Jesus makes a reference that He knew something. He knew that all things were accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Our Savior was acutely aware of the statements of Scripture. He knew, in fact, that fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies was taking place. And might I invite you to reflect with me about a truly astounding truth. When you and I think about the fulfillment of Scripture, I've listed a few considerations for you. Let's build those thoughts up by noting the Word of God proclaims itself absolutely and identically to be absolutely pure and without error. Is it not said in Psalm 119 verse 140, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. We read also in passages like these, Proverbs 30 verse 5, Every word of God is pure. 
Every single word you and I find in the Word of God is that which meets His approval. It's that which He has authorized and set forth for us by the Holy Spirit. It is that which carries literally the Word of life with it. Those words being pure bring us to perhaps think about Paul's famous refrain in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. May I say then that these reflections seem to naturally follow. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Prophecies about aspects of His life. Prophecies about the nature of His kingdom, namely the church. Prophecies about various and sundry features of the way He would die. At this point, it is no wonder that various infidels and unbelievers throughout the centuries have in fact accused the Bible of untruth. It has stated things that did not come to pass as proclaimed. There are those who in fact have tried to find ways around the apparent prophecies that came to fulfillment. We each understand, do we not, that man doesn't know the future. So if it's true that God in the Bible made statements hundreds of years in advance and these came meticulously and exactly to pass, that states clearly that this book is not from man, but that it is from heaven above and that God Himself authored it. Well, might I ask, look at some of these examples. I've chosen just a selected few. Many others might have been listed I've chosen just a few with respect to Jesus alone. Let me ask you, think with me. In Psalm 22, verse number 18, there was a specific prophecy about the fact that the clothes would not be parted asunder, but rather lots would be cast for them. This was with respect to the Messiah, with respect to the Anointed One. You and I know that was written roughly 1,000 years prior to Jesus being born a full millennium, and yet the prophecy was made. Did it come to pass? It surely did. In fact, in John 19, 24, we find on that occasion the Roman soldiers recognizing that the Lord's garments were at least unique in that regard. They did not rent them asunder, but cast lots for them. How did David know that that was going to happen? It seems like such an innocent statement. Isn't it true that David knew it because the God of heaven told him what to write, gave him that information? Might we also use this opportunity to think about this? There have been those who have stated, Jesus knew those Old Testament prophecies, so He specifically organized and arranged the features of His life in order that they'd be fulfilled. Well, notice the Lord couldn't have done that on this occasion. Remember, He was the one who was already having been taken those clothes from Him. He had no control directly over what the Roman soldiers did. Notice again, though, what they did fulfilled Scripture. Consider another example. In Psalm 69, verse 21, the very text Jesus referenced here when it says, He knew that those things were fulfilled... Jesus, in fact, recognized that in Psalm 69, 21, it was foretold He'd be given vinegar to drink. This sour wine mixed with water, and yet it came to pass on this occasion exactly as the Old Testament prophet had foretold it. Coincidence? 
by no means. You see, David, one more time, a thousand years prior to the time of Christ, he knew exactly what would be transpiring. May you and I have the greatest confidence that this Bible was not the product of man. It was and is the product of heaven. What about a third example? One more time, something over which Jesus had no direct control. When He sent those to bring the animal that He would ride into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, it was brought to Him the fault of a, don the fall of a donkey. Our Savior proceeded to ride that animal, and yet it was prophesied in Zechariah that it would be so. You and I again might appreciate how powerful is the conclusion that here was Zechariah writing roughly a half millennium prior to Jesus' birth, and yet he too joined in the description of what would be transpiring in the life of Jesus. Maybe another example, the treacherous efforts of Judas. We remember that he went out quickly and made arrangements for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver? Zechariah had foretold that that would be the betrayal price hundreds of years earlier. Coincidence? Obviously not. When you and I read the Old Testament or the New Testament alike, we should have the greatest affirmation that that which is written therein is in fact the very Word of heaven and shall be open to judgment. And your life, yours and mine, shall be judged in comparison to what this sacred book sets forth. The Bible is that special. No wonder here on the cross, perhaps one final observation, bringing us to that remarkable way in which our Savior found Himself in death. You know the passages with me as well, in which Jesus, while here upon earth, said, The foxes have hold, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 and following. As Jesus made that statement, we are so well aware of the fact, as far as we know, the Lord never owned a house, never owned a piece of ground. And yet, Isaiah had prophesied centuries earlier that in his death he would be rich. How could it be? Did the sacred writers make a mistake? Of course not. We know that as John chapter 19 goes to a glowing conclusion... We remember that Jesus was buried in a place in which nobody had ever been buried before. He, under the efforts of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus alike, as well as others it would seem, He was buried in a place that gave the appearance of being rich because, again, no one before had lain there. Isaiah was right because God knew. Isn't it fascinating then to reflect as you come to those bottom statements? The sadness then that describes some who try to discredit the Bible. There are those who even try to say, well, the dating of the Bible is incorrect. Really, it was written after those things happened. That isn't so. These statements were written by individuals long before the events transpired. And it's a testimony of the greatness of the one who wrote the book. We know today the tragedy that sometimes associates to the writings of men. Men make their mistakes. They misinterpret things and they set things in a way that's not correct. But it is not so with respect to the Bible. If you and I will allow the sacred scriptures to speak for themselves, it testifies to a book that should be lifted so highly in respect and treated with all the respect it rightfully deserves. 
It is with that statement that you'll notice you're at the bottom of that slide that this book is described as an unchanging thing. Listen as we look at some of these passages. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the inspired writer said, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God, quick and powerful. In 1 Peter 1.25 we read, The Word of the Lord endureth forever. That's a quotation from Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 3. Isn't it true that as we look especially on to verse 8 of that chapter, we see again that although the grass of the field will come and go, wither away, it is not so of the Word of God. The blessedness attaching to that particular word perhaps brings to mind a poem that I remember reading a few years ago. It's a poem I'd like to share with you as well. It's a poem entitled, The Anvil of God's Word. And it was written by John Clifford, and it goes like this. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. When looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn and beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter these hammers so? Just one, said he, with a twinkling eye. The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's Word. For ages skeptics' blows have beat upon it. Yet through the noise falling blows was heard. The anvil is unharmed. The hammers are gone. Many a skeptic's word has been raised against the Bible. Accusations and errors and discrepancies have been alleged, and one by one they have all fallen like the hammers worn out by the anvil. And yet, may I say, the anvil still stands secure. The anvil still stands strong, and the anvil shall continue so. It will wear out every hammer that chooses to beat against it. Not only, though, might we see in that innocent statement of Jesus a reference to these things... Perhaps in fairness, we can emphasize one last matter in the time that we have before us this morning. In addition to these features concerning the greatness of the Word of God, we also learn something amazing about the humanity of our Master. In His simple statement, I thirst. You may be aware that it wasn't really too long after Jesus' crucifixion that there began to appear stories there began to appear accounts and records in which there were individuals that claimed that He never really died. There were those that made the claim that He was just an apparition, just a ghost. There were even those who rather quickly made up those stories that the disciples or others came and stole the body away out of the tomb. May I say that maybe this little statement that Jesus said that I thirst is one more powerful reminder that He really was in the flesh when He died. It's not as if the God of heaven removed Him from the pain and the agony and the dehydration that went with crucifixion. And it's not as if by any means we can claim He was exempted in any way. He suffered all the torture, all of the excruciation that went with crucifixion, and that included the thirst maybe even thirst far beyond what you and I will ever imagine, that kind of thirst. If it is the case that those thoughts come before us, 
look at some of these statements in which even the New Testament writers in the midst of the first century strove to keep people's mind relative to the fact the Lord did die and He did suffer. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, John was writing to a specific class of people. They were known as Gnostics, individuals who were under the impression that the body was separate from the mind, and in that sense, maybe on the cross, the Lord never suffered the way that we thought He did. John wrote this book to say, we saw Him, we watched Him, we touched Him. Don't ever think that He didn't suffer. Wasn't it Thomas in John chapter 20 who was able to put his literal fingers into the very nail prints of our Master and into his side? And in response to that, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. You may remember after that, Jesus said to him, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen. Blessed be all of those who believe though they haven't seen. It may be you and I, in our eyes, haven't literally seen the nail prints of his hands and his feet. But may that not bring us in any way to unbelief. May we, like Thomas, believe despite the fact we haven't seen. As you and I give thought to that degree of belief and that degree of motivation, maybe this other passage should so quickly come to mind. It seems as if this very thought was in the mind of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 2 verse 14. It is a passage brimming over with power and majesty. The Hebrew writer said, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same, that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The entire point of the Hebrew writer is you and I suffer in the flesh. We have our difficult times and accidents and hard days. He says, Jesus too suffered in the flesh. Flesh and blood He suffered, but He did so with a degree to which He brought to the character of death or destruction the power of the devil. And what's more, verses 17 and 18 close that chapter by saying, because of that, He can be a source of support and help to any of us who also suffer. Let's use that thought to describe it like this. I know that because I stand before human beings, that I stand before individuals who've known disappointment and who've known despair and individuals who've known hurt and accident and even great harm perhaps. You've had things said to you, done to you, and perhaps implied relative to you that have brought tears, that have brought a great sense of emptiness. May I say to you, there is one who knows everything you're going through. He knows about your pain. He knows about your heartache. He knows about your sorrow. He knows about your disappointment. He knows about your despair. He knows about your broken dreams. He knows it all. And because He suffered in flesh and blood, He can be there to help you. No wonder we're told then in verse 18 of that Hebrews chapter 2, He can succor them, S-U-C-C-O-R. He can help them who come to Him. Don't think then that you have to be alone in your heartache and your hurt. There is one who is far more faithful than any man, far more powerful than any nation, and He is there to provide support. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. Hebrews 4.16 
I hope you and I, then, as we close this lesson, every time we think about the Lord being thirsty, we know then that He knows what it's like to be thirsty. We know what He's like to endure every other aspect of life, and He can be there to help us when we go to Him for help. As we close this lesson today, we might do so with the final statements and words in this conclusion slide. We've studied about the fifth statement that Jesus made on the cross, I thirst. And in the course of that study, we've highlighted two tremendous truths. One, the fact that Jesus identified the truthfulness of prophecy and that the Bible was not written by any man by Himself. Secondly, we've highlighted, haven't we, the grandeur, the fact that the Lord's thirst should remind us of the fact that He did endure every pain of life and He emerged victorious and He can be there to assist you and me when we also find ourselves in those hurtful conditions. Today, if I might close this lesson this way, I would choose to do it by reminding us that there is a plan of salvation and by far the greatest need of life is to have sins forgiven. The greatest need is to have sins remitted and the Son of God made that possible. This very day, are you a member of the body of Christ? Have you been washed clean from the sins that so earlier clouded your life? If we may assist you in that way today, notice the plan of salvation is as simple as this. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could be of assistance to you today in that regard, the baptistry behind me is prepared, everything is ready. There is, of course, the case that if you haven't been true to that calling, maybe after becoming a Christian you have since come to live in a very shameful way. You know that others know about your sins, and not only that, more importantly, God knows about it. Why not come back to your first love? Don't, don't, don't wish to remain distant from the Master. If you die in that condition, you're lost forevermore. This very day, if there would be anyone in the audience that would have a need to respond in a public way to the gospel of invitation, we hope, we trust, we pray that you would come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.